0: Uh, My name's Chris. If you're a regular attender, uh, I usually do that part of the service, and now I'm doing the confession. So forgive me if I actually kind of want to just walk around and ask you all, like, what was your favorite sin this week? (laughs) Um, Because that's... Lyle, you got one. No, okay. We'll skip that part. Um, This week, I want to talk about one of the things that I learned about myself recently, and... I'm 42 years old, so you'd think I'd know myself fairly well, but it turns out there's still a lot to learn. So one thing that I learned was one of the most famous prayers that I've heard over and over again is called the serenity prayer. Uh, so who has heard, again, all children's time-ish, who has heard of the serenity prayer, right? So it's, it's pretty commonly known. I don't know it that well, so I'm actually going to pull out my phone and check it. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Now, previously in my life, I would not have said that that is a prayer that is all that applicable to me. I never actually thought of myself as being someone that really struggled with, you know, what I can't change. That wasn't really something that that seemed to impact me all that much. Until this past summer, uh, when I started to, to see a counselor, which I highly recommend, it was fantastic, still do. And he and I were working through things. And some of the things kept coming up with these exact same themes for me. And those themes were that there was this part of my life that I felt really responsible for and felt like it was an incredibly important thing for me to be part of the positive change about it. And so some examples were my kids, and especially over the summer with gun violence. I just I couldn't figure out how to keep my children safe. Not just safe from being hurt, but even just the idea of it, of doing shooter drills in schools. And I, I looked at this over and over again, and it was tearing me up that I just couldn't figure out how to protect my kids, and I felt this enormous responsibility for that. And then, you know, less impactful but was still stressing me out was my work. And looking around and I've been fortunate enough to, to do fairly well and now oversee a bigger team than I used to and so I'd look at their jobs and I felt this tremendous amount of responsibility for these people at their work and making sure that they felt you know like that they were respected and all of these important things for, for them individually and so I'm working through this with my counselor and so again the, the thing about the serenity prayer that I think is funny is never meant anything to me until I saw it in a graphical format that's the way my brain works so I did an X and a Y or X and a Y axis, and kind of plotted out, you know, like with the counselor, my responsibility for things over time has gone way up, right? Like having two children is a tremendous amount of responsibility. So that, that went up really, really quick. And then having responsibility for these people at work went, went up and up as I, I had more folks that, that reported into to me. But then I thought, what is my power to make change? And that actually has stayed just, I mean, like there's a little bit of increase. Like There's a little bit there, but it's not much. And so there's this gap, and that gap has grown every single year of my life, that there is more stuff that I feel responsible for, but less power that I have to change it, or the same amount of power that I have to change it. And so for the first time in my life, I realized what that serenity prayer really was about. And for whatever reason, it required a graph for that to be something that I could do. So from now on... I look at that, and I think, of, I think of that graph all the darn time, and I think of that responsibility gap. And my confession to you all is that I didn't think about that serenity prayer. I didn't think of the fact that I need to give that, that responsibility gap in that graph, to God. That's the only way I can do that. It's the only way I can still feel good about my day, is that I have to be able to give that away to something. And the only way that I can do that is to give it to God. So will you please pray with me? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change those that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Today's scripture reading... Uh, comes to us from the 11th chapter of Isaiah, beginning on page 602 of the Old Testament in your pew Bible. You may remember it from the picture that was on the screen just a few moments ago. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on my, all on my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples, the nations shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word.
1: Our gospel lesson comes from the gospel according to Matthew, the third chapter. We'll read verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore bear fruit worthy of repentance." And do not presume to say for yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestors, for I tell you God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laying at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance." but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The Gospel of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer. When we hear these hard words, O Lord, we also need to hear the assurance of pardon. That in the grand differential equation that separates our capacities and our responsibilities, Christ stands as a solution. And so, release us from the anxiety and give to us instead forgiven ears that hear. To the glory of Christ. Amen. This morning I want to zoom in on our Isaiah passage to a couple of verses. I want to thank Margaret for addressing the rest of the text about the peaceable kingdom. Because that is a glorious image, and we rush to that. But what precedes the peaceable kingdom are these verses I want to focus on these verses partially because the imagery is so very, very strange. And I spent a big chunk of this past week breaking down the Hebrew in these verses, um, none of which is particularly helpful to the sermon, but it was fascinating. So I won't bore you with what I learned, but after you invest that much time, you better do something with this. So uh, this is the sermon I ended up with. That larger passage of the peaceable kingdom in Isaiah chapter 11 has those wondrous Images of the carnivores and the herbivores dwelling together in harmony the wolf with the lambs the leopards and the baby goats The lions and the little calves all marching in a happy procession being led by a little child It has all the flavor of a Maurice Sundeck painting the grand rumpus where the little ones and the wild things dwell in safety with unrestrained joy Even snakes and asps are rendered harmless. They're but little playthings for infants. That's a great vision. Perhaps controversial as Isaiah seems here to uh, champion vegetarianism. I, I, I hope there are steaks in heaven. But the point is well taken because how can you have steaks without something dying? I guess that's all in God's mysterious plan But predatory behavior is Isaiah's point. Predatory behavior will be banished. You see the vision, and we get Isaiah's point. We're exhausted by violence, and Chris mentioned that in the sense of, of lack of control for the safety of his own children. We're crushed by the running of the human race. And we all, to a certain extent, feel like good old Norm Peterson, who announced to his favorite bartender it's a dog-eat-dog dog world Sammy and I'm wearing milk bone underwear. Our problem with the prophecy is not the vision of the outcomes that we understand it's those intermediate steps how do we get there we see that the rallies right what do we want justice when do we want it no the problem is seldom articulated in those rallies as how we're supposed to get to that justice we're impatient we know what we want but we haven't a clue Uh, said no one anywhere at one of these rallies how do we get there a fair and equitable distribution of access to the means of production and the wealth produced balanced in such a way that motivation for society's betterment are enhanced by a sense of mutuality and kinship throughout all humanity and the environment Yeah, at that point, the whole rally would just sort of disintegrate, right? (laughs) It's no wonder that Isaiah commands that the only way we get there is by a coming Messiah, an anointed one, who ushers in those outcomes. And so we are left to reverse engineer the characteristics of that Messiah to discern what is the path to peace. To as John the Baptist said, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Which brings us to the two verses that I wanted to zero in on today the characteristics of our Savior. Strangely enough, the beginning quality of Isaiah's Messiah is this phrase He shall delight in fear of the Lord. Delight in fear. That's bizarre. What is our movement towards peace if it isn't getting our fears in the right order? Allowing ourselves to not be frightened by that which is not eternal and frightening and instead to be in fear of those things that do have consequences our violent restlessness arises out of misplaced fear. So the first test question that align our hearts to the behaviors of God's Messiah would be checking our own fear factor. What do we fear? Because the root of all things are motivated by how our fears dictate our priorities. We tend to think of fear as a pathology we want to get over our fears right we want to renounce our phobias we want to move forward with fearless lives but the problem is not fear the problem is that we fear the wrong things that's what john the baptist is telling to the pharisees and the sadducees who warned you to flee from the coming wrath What alarm bell wakened your senses to the emergency and made you think that this would be a place for your refuge? As the Gospels unfold, we learn how the Pharisees and the Sadducees are completely motivated by appearances and reputations. They spend a great deal of time verifying their ancestry. Their positions were first and foremost inherited. Only the child of a Pharisee could hope to grow up someday to be a Pharisee. That's why John tells them that their Abrahamic heritage is of absolutely no value in the coming kingdom. God could make Abraham's descendants out of a bag of rocks, John says. Being from a proper family was no insulation against the coming fire. Don't fear coming from the wrong kind of family, which is why particularly the Pharisees invested so much energy in their appearances. Jesus criticized them because they made their fringes long and their phylacteries big and they would prayed around in their flowing gowns speaking equally flowing prayers. There again, Isaiah gives us a little clue. The reign of God, does not arise because things look good. He points out in verse 3, the Messiah does not judge by what his eyes see or what his ears hear. Your clothes and the scores on your oral exams are not your ticket into the kingdom of the righteous. In the peaceful kingdom, delight arises from fearing God and no longer judging one another based on looks, Or what sounds good, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now righteousness, that's one of those words that uh, Chris would use in a children's sermon because it's one of those churchly words that uh, we only use kind of inside this space. You don't walk out of here and talk about the righteousness of your new house or the righteousness of your children unless you want your neighbors to think you're part of some whack-job cult. No, we end up using different words, but the concept of righteousness arises out of measurements. Measurements. A merchant's scale was determined to be righteous when it reflected an accurate balance. You would talk about a righteous measure, a righteous balance. Now, most of us are way too young uh, to remember the butcher's thumb on the scale. You know, and my dad would say, how much a pound is that thumb? Yeah, we, don't, we don't have that experience anymore, so let me put it in more modern ter- terms. Righteousness means that the price posted next to the item in the grocery aisle matches the database at checkout when you scan the barcode. Okay, do you understand what it means now? <laughs> There's a relationship between what you expect and what you get. Righteousness is consistency. There's no favoritism. There's no bait and switch. There is no surprise. Even the poor and the meek get the same deal. I've been amazed how quickly since the pandemic we have jettisoned in our urban mythology the nobility of our essential workers. Remember a year and a half ago how important they were? Oh, my goodness. They, they, they helped us with our groceries, they brought us our DoorDash food. You know We were outsourcing all the risk to them, and so we really in our hearts were moved by their kindness and their perpetual energy in order to bring to us safety and security while we were hunkered down in quarantine. We put out signs, heroes work here, remember those? Yeah, that was only about 13 months ago, folks. It wasn't that long ago. But it is amazing to me how quickly all of those heroes are now uh, being relegated to the land of zeros. They're the meek and the poor. And now that we're back to what we call normal, we treat them the way we used to treat them. As you're really annoyed when they can't even get your fry order at McDonald's right. What Isaiah foresees is a day in which there will be no zeros The meek and the poor will be judged by exactly the same standard as everybody else even when there is no pandemic fear and wrath to come see that's the energy in the midst of the pandemic we were frightened we were frightened of the wrath to come we were frightened of the ambiguity We were scared because we didn't know who was going to get sick and how sick they were going to get and whether or not they were going to give it to somebody else who may even be sick unto death. And so in that anxiety of the wrath to come, all of a sudden we started looking at one another in a different way as equals. But now that that judgment is over with, we can go back to the order that is familiar to us in which the poor and the meek are just unfortunate but certainly not to be celebrated. Isaiah grants to us then, Two more images here as we celebrate the Advent Sunday of love. Isaiah writes, "...He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Now, it has to do with odd words. What in the heck is a rod of the mouth? And how do you smite somebody with the breath of your lips? especially if you brush your teeth regularly, Strange imagery, I know. But linger with me for just a bit on these words as Isaiah's original audience would have heard them. Let's pause on that first image, the rod of his mouth. Now, in a few minutes after communion, we are going to speak together the words of the 23rd Psalm. And we will say, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Same word there, the rod of his mouth, the rod and staff that brings comfort. Now, the staff we know is for support, you know. Um, in fact, there is a direct line between that stick that a shepherd would walk with in order to be able to cross uneven ground, his staff that he would also use to be able to help grab the sheep if they had stumbled, that staff, and the staff that reports to Chris at work. They support you, you lean on them. You, know, you think if you've got more responsibility, imagine your staff that has to answer to you, Chris, yeah. It is, but the rod has been misunderstood significantly. And the proverb, Proverbs thirteen fourteen, Spare the rod, spoil the child. Clearly has something to do with God's admonition to spank your children. No. <laughs> Sheep are timid animals. And if you want to continue to be their shepherd, the last thing you would do would be hit them with a rod. A shepherd that beats the sheep with a rod is no longer that sheep's shepherd. The rod was used in order to push enemies away or to separate the sheep gently so that you could check out and see if one of them needs shearing or had a wound or a limp. It was used to be able to guide them away from dangerous cliffs and keep them in the direction they should go. The rod of his mouth. The words. Not to beat, but to guide. Not to punish, but to gently steer spare the rod, spoil the child yeah if you're not steering your child if you're not guiding your child then your child will end up thinking they can wander wherever they want with the illusion they will be safe but with the rod you shall guide them the rod of your mouth the words that you say the rod defended the sheep from predators but when it came in the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep the rod comforted the sheep. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now, the other tool, in addition to the rod, was what is said about the breath of his lips. With the breath of his lips, he shall smite the wicked. Now, smiting the wicked is as violent as you might think, but keep the eyes on the wicked, not on the sheep the sheep of his pasture. Many pastors from this very pulpit, I know myself, but others included, have reminded us that the breath word, is a word that has to do with breath and wind and spirit. With his spirit, with his breath, with his words, the wicked shall be smitten, but the righteous, the sheep, shall be encouraged. The interesting thing about the use of the rod and about the breath is that it is one of discernment. And so when you have this backdrop of the Messiah coming, many believed, as did those who were chasing after John the Baptist, that it was going to be a grand division and all the people we didn't like would be smitten and all the people we did like would be welcomed into the peaceable kingdom. But oddly enough, the real Messiah came and threw them a curve As Jesus was helping the poor Pharisee Nicodemus discern the words of Moses and the prophets, he said, God so loved the world. Who are the sheep? And how do you sort things when you realize that all we like sheep have gone astray? That it's not about smiting some people and saving others it is about removing the wickedness so that we can all see the peace of God's Messiah. That the rod comes to comfort and the words come to purge. That's how we get to the glorious picture of the weird lion with strange eyebrows. (laughs) That's how the world enters into that grand procession that grand rumpus of the child leading them and making things safe. It is about figuring out that the only thing we need fear is God. And God has come to comfort us. God has been sent to show us peace and love. No rousing, closing illustration. Nothing other than that simple word to your heart. God wants you to know that you are one of God's sheep. God is not angry at you. God is not disappointed in you. God is not interested in somehow whacking you around for all the bad things you've done. In God's peaceable kingdom, you are included you are guided by the rod of God's kindness, and you are encouraged by the very breath of our Savior. In the middle of all of the places of misplaced fears and anxieties, we are invited to take our own spirit and exhale that false fear and instead inhale the delight of God's presence. And that presence invites you. Amen. Let us stand and affirm our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord.